Hey everybody, welcome to the Viscast. I'm your host, Josh Viss. We are in the midst of a four-part series on atonement. And this is the second episode. First one was on Christus Victor, and this second episode is on penal substitutionary atonement. We will explain the basics of this theory to you and then give our thoughts on it, basically. So without further ado, penal substitutionary atonement. So about for the first thousand years, it was the Christus Victor model, which uh, we spoke about in the last episode. And then this model, which came to be known eventually as penal substitutionary atonement, uh, emerged. It emerged largely, or, or partly at least, due to the fact that the Christus Victor model did not portray God as entirely sovereign. And for some, namely Anselm, um, this was problematic. Now, the penal substitutionary atonement, which I'm going to explain initially, does not coincide perfectly with Anselm's treatment, Anselm's theory, uh, which is called the satisfaction theory. And I will explain the, the subtle difference between the two I don't think it's terribly important, but I want to just explain the difference between those uh, two theories. Penal substitutionary atonement, I would say, is still the dominant atonement theory in certainly Western Christian churches. As I explain this one, I expect many of you will recognize it. So this theory involves the paying of a penalty by someone other than the guilty party. So penal is the part that there is a penalty uh, that needs to be reckoned with, or paid, let's say. And then the substitution part is that someone other than the guilty party is paying. That's why it's called penal substitutionary atonement. So what's the penalty? Who has it and who needs to pay it? How did it come about? In this theory, um, human beings are sinners who have dishonored and even angered God through rebel rebellion and their unwillingness to praise God. This particular way of uh, speaking of it comes from uh, Romans 1 mentions this particular view of humanity. Adam and Eve somehow through their disobedience um, allowed evil into creation, which they were then, you know, the created world that we that we now live in, which they were forced um, to be a part of. And then something about humanity also, uh, the e some sort of evil nature was revealed, and so humanity was fallen. This is a fairly common Christian notion, and this is. This idea that human beings are sinners who have dishonored and angered God, its roots are in that story. And then I think many theologians and biblical scholars would say both that the vast majority of the biblical texts bear this out, that human beings are imperfect, mm -hmm. to say the least, and then they would say just, just look around you or look at your own life and you realize that you're not always doing the things you want to be doing. Um, I like it when they 
when they direct you to look at your children, right? So they, and I've used this dumb story too, where you know that you're totally depraved, you know that humankind is totally depraved when your child is sitting in their high chair and you put a bowl of cereal before them and they look you in the eye and they take that bowl of cereal and they throw it on the floor. They are by nature disobedient, by nature depraved, by nature sinful, even a baby. Yep, this is a common Christian motif. It is, I would say, especially strong in the Reformed tradition of Luther and Calvin. Luther and Calvin really intensify this notion. In, in, in the, I'm not a uh, historian of Christianity, but I'm confident in saying that they intensify this notion of humanity's sinfulness, put a special emphasis on it. And ultimately, it is Luther and Calvin that popularize penal substitutionary atonement. So this makes sense. So there needs to be a penalty paid. It's going to be paid by somebody other than the guilty party. The guilty party are human beings who are obvious sinners. And um, the, the, the aggrieved party is God. The proper penalty for the sinful behavior is death and then after death eternal punishment in hell both of those elements are I would say crucial to uh, penal substitutionary atonement God is holy and good and so because of God's character in this model he then is must be and is naturally repulsed and angered by the sinfulness of humanity. And I'm going to quote from um, a book that I used, and I just want to get the name of the author here correct, um, because it's four views on atonement. And I just want to make sure I get the author of this view. His name is Thomas Schreiner. I believe he's a New Testament professor at a fairly conservative seminary, if I'm not mistaken. And this is a quote from him explaining how, ultimately what this quote is trying to say, if you can follow it, is explaining how God is both angry and desiring and needing to punish someone, and yet also still good. Right. Here it is. God's anger flows from his goodness, his matchless character. God's anger does not call into question his goodness, but is a manifestation of it. God's goodness necessarily approves of what accords with his character and repulses what stands contrary to it. So goodness necessarily loves what is right and hates what is evil. God's wrath then is holy, righteous, and unsustained by any evil motive. We recognize what what it's doing. We we see it in all kinds of writings, including in the scriptures, the need to defend God or the need to solve a, a conundrum that necessitates our viewing of God with some skepticism. 
Yeah, this is a logic puzzle. This is his way of seeing a, a, a real logical problem in the character of God right. and trying to solve it. You might say that logically he has solved it. <laughs> you might say that. Because um, you, you, you can follow it in that, that quote. It's a little bit tricky to follow. Um, in terms of any sort of real intellectual or emotional satisfaction, it's ridiculous, Yeah. ultimately, in that way, in my opinion. But we'll come back because um, we'll have lots of things to say about this particular atonement theory. So God judges sinners retributively for their bad behavior. That's just how God is, as the Bible shows. Meaning, God punishes sinners appropriately for their bad behavior. That's the kind of God that God is. So you can't, what this is trying to get around is saying, you, God can't just forgive. God judges and punishes. That's how God is. And some of it's personal. I punish David for his sin by killing the son that was born to Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. So it's personal. And also, and, and also in that story, by the way, by having in the future... Right, one of his sons right. rape all his other wives That's in front right. of him. Right, right. It's it's an incredibly FYI. it's an incredible story. But or God punishes collectively yep. with that's what the exile is. God, I mean the the um, conclusion that Ezra and Nehemiah draw uh, and the prophets with them is that all of Israel was punished because of the sin of idolatry. And even those then who resisted that idolatry were still punished along with the rest, including folks who wouldn't have had a clue what worship meant. Children, and they were all punished. So this retributive punishment is both personal and collective. So, the question then is, how can humanity's sinfulness and God's need, his his appropriate need in this articulation, for justice via punishment be remedied? And the answer, of course, is Jesus can pay the penalty for humanity. Um, The background to somebody, to the substitution part for this particular author was that substitutionary sacrifice is something God does accept. We see it in the Old Testament that God accepts animals in the place of humans who have sinned. That's a key point of background for, um, for this author. And we can, we can maybe say something about that substitutionary nature of sacrifice in the sacrificial system is, is not so clear actually. That that's actually what's going on, but many think it. There are still many who think it is, but there are equally as many who think that's actually not what's happening in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So the punishment and penalty that humanity deserved was laid on Jesus instead of on the human beings who actually sinned and deserved 
the penalty. It is important to say, though perhaps problematic, that Jesus is also God, divine. So in the cross, God's love and holiness are manifested because God is both punisher and the punished. As odd as that is, it is a theological conundrum of this theory, right? God and Jesus is the God man through the virgin birth, through the incarnation. Right, right. But the reason I say that part is because proponents of this theory, right, part of their apology for it is that, yes, you are seeing God pouring out his wrath upon Jesus because someone must be punished for the sinfulness of humanity. And I think many proponents of this theory can see how ugly that looks. And so then they also want to point out that God is also the one being punished on the cross, right? And so does that mitigate the ugliness of it somehow? Some might say yes, some might say no. So something like this theory or or points of contact between this theory and Anselm of Canterbury, who was a Roman Catholic bishop, there are points of contact. Anselm of Canterbury was the first to sort of take on this, the uh, Christus Victor and put something, offer something different. He put forth what was called the satisfaction, has become to be known as the satisfaction theory. This is in 1099, so almost 1,100, which is why I say for about 1,000 years, Christus Victor was the dominant theory. Anselm of Canterbury mainly takes issue, partially I should say, takes issue with the way in which Christus Victor does not present us with a sovereign, a fully sovereign God. You know, it's a God who need, you know, is in competition with evil forces right. and becomes sovereign, but there's at least a time there where the evil forces really have power and control of the earth. Is, would it be true to say, Josh, that in Christus Victor, the devil has a prominent role and in Penal substitution, not so much. Yeah, it re- really doesn't have any role. In, in penal substitution, there is no right. role for the devil. That's right. Which is which is one of the great. Which I mean, if I was going to put a a plus in one theory's category over the other, that'd be a big plus for me. Okay. I'm just saying for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not not speaking for both of us now, but I'm speaking for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm unsure. I'll I'll come to it maybe at the end. My thoughts on that. So the way in which Anselm of Canterbury's satisfaction theory is slightly different, uh, and for some better, is that God does not pour out His holy wrath on Jesus in Anselm's theory. Rather. Uh, Jesus' self-sacrificial act is accepted as sufficient to meet the demands of divine justice, right? So God really has the choice of accepting Jesus' self-sacrificial offering in place of needing to punish humanity and does do that. Whereas in penal substitution, God needs to punish humanity 
And in place of doing that, punishes, takes out his righteous anger on Jesus. It's a subtle difference, but it's a fairly important one in terms of how God is viewed. And so Anselm, for some anyway, Anselm's theory would be better in certain ways. Uh, How you view God in, in that theory seems a little bit improved over penal substitutionary. And I don't know if I have this right. So help me here, but one is God, God to Christ, and the other is Christ to God. Right. It's more if like Christ coming to God, saying, right. "Would you accept this instead yeah. of the other? Instead of having to um, punish humanity, would you accept my my offering?" And, and the other one is yes. The uh, God's the action is God's wrath and anger onto Jesus. Right. That's penal substitutionary right. atonement. Now, where does the, or does the Trinitarian formula play a role in any of this? Do you know? Or, I mean, is there any attempt here to, is there an attempt being made here by either one to, for um, continuity within the Trinity, within the Godhead? I mean, I would think the second one, if God is Jesus and Jesus is God, then that feels to me like an attempt, perhaps. I don't know that I'm right. So in Christus Victor, there's no no issue. They're working together to defeat evil. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit. I mean, you might say God sends Jesus on a mission to do this thing, empowers Jesus. Jesus dies and rises again in the resurrection we would say that god was a part of the resurrecting of jesus and then together those two events without any clear explanation of how but those two events cross and resurrection really accomplish at least an initial defeat of the evil power so they're really working together in that theory in this theory um especially the one penal substitution versus satisfaction and i'm really going to focus the rest of the time on penal substitution, there is w- one possible uh, criticism: is it's there's a division within the Godhead, if you will. That is, they're not unified. If God is punishing Jesus, that right. seems like a moment of disunity between the two of them, right. and for some, that's a problem. Um, and that's penal substitution. That's penal substitution. So, yeah, evaluation. I would say that this theory, penal substitutionary atonement, and and there is a sort of, I think, growing dissatisfaction with it. I don't know when it started, but I, I recognize that there are a number of people, not just myself, who look at this and it, it appears quite ugly. I don't think you can scare people into faith. So when we try, generally what happens is people will nod their head for a while, walk away, and dismiss you. Yeah, and rightfully so, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's my thing. I'm not saying some people aren't going to church and doing the things they're doing because out of fear. I think fear is, a, as we're seeing in our country right now, and in, in the world, fear is a pretty strong motivator, but... I don't get the feeling anymore with people that I come in contact with that fear is motivating them to uh, to believe. It, I don't know how you make somebody believe out of fear anyway. You can make them say they believe, but 
you can't bring them to love and honor and out of fear. The way of motivating people through fear in religion seems to be waning. The yeah, ability to so. do that. There was a time, I think, that that did work. It yeah, seems I to have been. Sinners I in the hand no. of an angry God, that kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah, um, I grew up with anger. and I mean, I grew up with fear. That was the main meat we were served on Sunday morning was fear. And I mean, maybe it worked on me, but if it did, it didn't create the kind of faith that I'd like to see us create in our grandchildren. Right. I mean, I'd like to see us create faith in our grandchildren. I'd like to give them something that would compel them to want to be in God's circle, in God's community, because they find something compelling about it, and they find that it's it's a way to live that. And I'd like that for myself as well, mm-hmm. you know, and you. And but there's some questions that that we have about some wonderings about this theory. One of them, which is you you kind of touched on, is what's the point of the resurrection if it's all about the cross? So I would say that there are theological problems with this theory. So one of them we mentioned, which is this moment where, you know, the Trinity is already a very strange concept, right? Um, we're, we're monotheistic, but we have three persons. It's already pretty difficult. But then when you start doing like sometimes or one time, the most important event ever in our faith, we describe as one part of the Trinity taking out his anger on another part of the Trinity, how are they at cross purposes? How is one part of the Trinity at cross purposes with the other? How does that work? What does that look like? The other one you're mentioning is why does the, what's the purpose of the resurrection? Uh, it, It doesn't play any role in this theory. It has no function. Validation? Sure. It doesn't solve anything. Right? It just doesn't do anything in this in this they will sometimes say through the cross and resurrection we were redeemed or something. But when they get into the particulars, it's all on the cross. It's all there. Yeah. yeah. That's the moment at which humanity is saved. Because Jesus mm-hmm. pays the penalty for us. Jesus dies for our sins. So it's all there and you don't have much. Now, admittedly, uh Christus Victor Right. doesn't have an explanation for it, really. I mean, we named a couple, but they were, you know, they were fairly absurd. Yeah, um, they're silly. Yeah, I mean, they're, they were silly. And so... Well, I mean, they're, they're to me, to me and you. I'm, I'm not sure that that's fair to say about... I, we should be careful with saying, in, in our opinion, they, they sound that way to us. And for others, it's the meat of their meal. So I, I don't want to belittle that, and I know you don't want to either, but for us, it isn't, yeah, it's not... Um, it just doesn't sound credible. Yeah, it sounds th- fantastic. Yeah, it sounds good. mythological, to be honest. Right, right. And so, so you have that trouble with the, the, the theological trouble of not, not having resurrection as a part of your theory. Resurrection seems to be really important to the New Testament authors. Um, you also, I think, theologically are articulating a God and the character of that God in a way 
that is quite clearly troublesome. Right. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, this is not a... So we say God is forgiving. God will forgive. If, if we say, if you confess your sins, God's faithful um, to forgive. But when it came to, to forgiving humans for their natural imperfections, um, f- God didn't really forgive, not in this theory. This isn't forgiveness. Well, here's a, here's a quote you sent me. I'll, I'll just say it because it's so good. What sort of justice is it that punishes an innocent person for what another person did? Jesus teaches us to love unconditionally and forgive without demanding payment. And I would add in parentheses there, he also said, forgive as you were forgiven. Well, that's that's a bit of a problem. If, in this if, theory, if, we were not forgiven. In this theory, we were not forgiven unconditionally. We were forgiven only because the price was paid. That's right. So, in other words, then that's the kind of forgiveness I'm I'm allowed to give that doesn't feel much like gospel, doesn't feel much like good news. Now, the rest of it then is, how are we to reconcile this with a God who requires exacting payment in order to forgive? That's not even really forgiveness. That's right. Um, so, I mean, I think... And that's way more important. That point, I think, yeah, is way more important too. than the disunity of the Father and too. Son. For okay, fine. Yeah. They don't have an explanation yeah. for the resurrection. Right. Okay, that's okay. Right. It's a complicated thing. But this one, for yeah. me, this is a big deal. Yeah, I me think. too. I, I find it. I find that one very, very difficult, troublesome, and worth thinking about, which is what I'm trying to do with all this. I mean, you know, part of my, you know, growth over the last few years, really, partly, partly because of you, or partly you're to blame. I don't know which way to go with that, but... Depends is on, that we're not done? Who you're asking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you hear what I'm saying is mm-hmm. what I've grown to think, and I, you know, I still struggle with it. Is that we're not done thinking yet? That we're not done thinking about these things yet. That we shouldn't be done thinking about these things yet, or questioning these things. Yeah, one way to think about it is that, and and we can see this already. For a while, Christus Victor was an explanation that was satisfying to people. And then it stopped being satisfying to people. And a new theory was put forth, and it started to win the day. I now think we are entering another age where penal substitution, which has been the sort of overriding theory for most Western Christians, is just starting to lose any power. And it's, it's time to rethink it again. Um, and come up with an explanation that people can get excited about based on who we are now and what our culture is like now and what we know now and what we desire now. Uh, Yeah, and there there should be freedom to pursue that. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm encouraged by your courage and your willingness to put these things forward, even though it's not necessarily safe to do so. Yeah, the safety thing is, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah. Um, I think it might be, sometimes I think it might be overplayed. I know lots of people worry about the safety of their jobs if they say certain things. And I'm sure there's truth to it. I've I've seen people lose positions. I, I know that that happens out there. So it's real, but it also, because people are worried about it, they don't do it. And so then we don't get to find out when and where and how you're able to do it 
Um, so we're kind of just running this experiment ourselves. How does this theory that puts God as one who has to have a kill, to use, a, to use strong language, has to have a kill, to really forgive he has to have a kill. That's right. How does that make him different than pagan gods or others who need blood in order to be, to have things covered or to, you know, that, I mean, that's a question I asked that I'm pretty sure I don't have the answer to because the answer is it doesn't. (laughs) That's right. I think it's pretty simple. (laughs) Right. Shoot, I was afraid of that. I think it's pretty simple. Yeah, I think that's right. Right, right, right. I think the thing to acknowledge a couple of things to acknowledge about this theory um, to its, to its credit. It doesn't include the resurrection, but it has a very clear explanation of Jesus's death in a way that Christus Victor does not. Right. Um, it is very logical. It, it's, it's quite logical. Every step is laid out for you. And it's it supported not, by by scripture in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a growing uh, from right. what I read. There's yeah. a movement to say, no, we've misread these texts, right. that kind of thing. <clears throat> and it, it could be that it's not as well supported as we think. I think the idea that God is a God who punishes sin punitively and re- retributively, but. That seems pretty right to me, from <laughs> especially Bible. from the Old Testament. But I think also, and um, this author, uh, what did I say? It was Schreiner, I believe. Mm-hmm. Schreiner. Yeah. He says the same thing. He says, you know, lest you think this is just, this idea that God punishes retributively is just in the Old Testament. He says, it seems to me it's also pretty pretty prevalent in the new testament and this is i think mainly it would be that in the new testament it's it's pushed to after the general resurrection of the dead when the kingdom is set up you know the dead are raised and the living and they're all brought together and some folks are going to a place of punishment of some kind so it doesn't the new testament doesn't do away with the concept Uh, in fact, it's a key concept of yeah. the kingdom of God and Jesus's message. And um, so you can find quotes for, from the mouth of Jesus. And um, here's here's something I've, I've had said to me directly. That's a powerful thing that elicits a little fear in me, to be honest. It will say, and whether you like it or whether you comprehend it, it's still true. You don't have to like it. It's still true. You don't have to comprehend it. That doesn't mean it's not true. So like it or not, this is the truth. And you can't just manufacture your own truth, which is what you're trying to do. That's the kind of pushback that I think has some legitimacy. You know, I say, yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know, however, but I want to say, but at the same time, that, that shouldn't prevent me or anybody else from thinking about this from another way. I, I mean, it isn't this one way or the highway, I don't think. Or really the, really not the highway, but the, the road to hell. There's no response to that that will defeat their position. 
Yeah. Doesn't exist. You, you people have to make choices about who they think God is and what they think God is how how God is related to humanity. It is it's really up, it's really up to people to to make those decisions if this type of God as described uh, as necessitated by the penal substitutionary atonement theory is the type of God that some people want and that some people are, are willing to worship and be in relationship with, I can't prove to them they're incorrect. It's not possible to do so. I it's mean, not you, really what you're trying to do either. No, I mean, you, you can point to other places and say, doesn't there seem to be some inconsistency here as we did with forgiveness, right? I think that's a powerful yeah. point that yeah. ought to be considered by, by anybody who is um, a proponent of this theory or something like it. That's a, you, you, They need to consider that. But at the end of the day, I can't disprove that God is cruel and punitive. And punitive. I can't disprove that. I just, I don't believe it to right. be true right. of the God of right. the universe. R regardless of the evidence. Regardless of of some of the evidence, yeah, right. that right. we have. We right. have, we do have good biblical evidence. We have a world in which a lot of terrible things happen. Why is that, right? So I understand why people believe in theories like that this and then in a god a scary god that this the scary god that this theory requires but right. i also understand why lots of people are rejecting it well there's another another to go to go back in to for us to go back in there's this other i mean martin luther king said innocent suffering is redemptive you know, if Martin Luther King said it, you're almost predisposed to, to have to at least consider it pretty seriously, right? Forgetting right. for a moment that he's he's not God either. But how so? How is innocent suffering redemptive? How is it curative? How does it cure anything? Well, it might be true that in human history there have been times where we have seen innocent suffering and it has changed our hearts. Right. And that's a little bit different, right? Like we saw, you know, in in the civil rights movement, those um, those girls were killed in that church, and it shocked people, right? Birmingham was a big turning point. Salma, when right. the dogs they sick the dogs on them and the water hoses, right on people. Yeah. It changes our, it, it changes our our hearts, right? It, it, right. It's it's striking to people, but to say that. The God that the God of the, the logic of the God of the universe is predicated upon innocent suffering. That's terrible. Yeah, that's different. It's different, and yeah, so uh, thank you. That's good. I wonder if that could be a way of saying innocent suffering has been powerful, but it's not. It's not prescribed as something good. Yeah. By the God of the universe. In other words, we, we it shouldn't be necessary for us 
Maybe it is necessary for us sometimes to see that. It shouldn't be yeah. necessary for God. Yeah. The God of the universe should be better than that. Right. Not needing it, not needing to have that, that kind of payback, right? Or at least that's my hope, I guess, my own personal hope. The other th- the thing that you said about Satan not being a part of this theory and that that in some ways might be make it better for you than the uh, Christus Victor theory. I understand because I also struggle with the notion of a personified evil, that is evil, that there are evil beings. We don't see them, but they exist. And that, Yeah, I struggle with that notion. Um, <clears throat> I frankly don't really believe it, I don't, or I certainly don't live my day-to-day life ever thinking about Satan and demons. If we can think about evil as having some sort of role in the the problems that the world has without personifying it, and, and this is tricky because I don't re- really even know to, how to articulate it well. I've begun reading a book that somebody recommended to me that I can see is is getting at this notion. It's called the uh, the powers that be, I think it is, by Walter Wink. And he says this, you know, like institutions, we know that there's something about them, there's something spiritual about them, right? Like churches have a certain spirit about them and people can sense it. Other institutions have kind of a spirit about them and that spirit can change and shift. And, you know, I imagine the government now I imagine Washington, D.C. feels differently now than it did when Obama was president. I I imagine there are similarities, but I also imagine there's differences. I don't even know, how how do you talk about the spirit of this administration? But we know that that's a thing. There's something real about it, while also it being something intangible. So thinking of the powers and principalities, uh, a phrase that Paul uses in... um, Romans, right? Mm -hmm. That there is this evil power, but that we we can now, because of the age we live in, we can now demythologize it to a certain extent and not say it's, oh, it's concentrated in these beings that you need to believe in, but that it's still out there and needs to be defeated and needs to be opposed that I think is interesting and can make me more receptive to Christus Victor than I than I might even initially have been before right. I, you know, your thoughts just move about and change. Right. So I so I'm a little bit uh, sympathetic to Christus Victor. I'm not at all sympathetic to penal substitution. Really, there's nothing about it. I I admit that there are places in the Bible you can go to yeah. to find some support for yeah. this. Yeah. Um, but at this point in my life, I have I have totally yeah. rejected this right. notion of God and Jesus and, and what God did in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Well, you, you said earlier in the last podcast that there was a movement back to the earlier theory. Is that 
what you see is the reason why. Yeah, it's it's born out of the same. All the yeah. things we're talking about are things other people are seeing, and finally, you know, I don't know how this happens. Just eventually, people start to say, "This is bad. Why do we believe this?" Yeah, and it kind of well, catches fire. I mean, even a, a relatively conservative New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright rejects penal substitutionary atonement, and he says, uh, in an interview I read, he says. That sounds like the pagan religion. That's the, right. The God, this angry God that takes out his anger on his son, he's like, that's ridiculous. Now, he wants to, as is often the case, he wants to then claim it's also not biblical. That's where I think people's, I don't know, there's just something mm-hmm. in them that, that can't take the next step and say, it is, it, it's there if you're not crazy for coming up with this theory or thinking that this might be what was happening. I mean, when Jesus says, um, take this cup from me, what's he talking about? What cup? What's he afraid of? Is it just death? Most scholars think that's the cup of wrath that he has to drink by going on the cross, and that wrath is God's wrath. I mean, there are legitimate places where you can go to and say, there seems to be a hint at this kind of theory. Yeah, and, and um, you know, N.T. Wright, as mm-hmm. far as I've seen, doesn't take that step in saying, you know, those places that are articulating, those places in the Bible that are articulating this theory are mistaken. I preached that sermon every Good Friday for 20 years. It's a really powerful sermon. Yeah, it's emotionally... Penal se- yeah, <laughs> penal it's emotionally, se- yeah. I mean, that, to, the thing that I think we're maybe not acknowledging is that if if you're a good orator, and I've heard this, I heard it done at a um, some sort of youth event where you just make everybody in the audience feel terrible and also grateful at the same time. So terrible for how terribly sinful they are and then grateful that Jesus you know, died in their place. And, and you can talk about, I mean, Mel Gibson's movie is, is in a sense trying to do this, just put all this emphasis on Jesus being whipped and carrying his cross and dying. And, you know, and then it's all in service of making you feel both terrible and grateful for what Jesus did for you on the cross, dying right. in your place. That has proven to be, I think it's unbelievably emotionally manipulative and we do it to kids Mm -hmm. you know kids not Mm -hmm. just young adults but we do it to kids i think it's i think it's awful Mm -hmm. i I don't think we should ever do that even if we believe in this theory i don't think we should do that obviously i'm saying i don't believe in this theory i don't believe in this conception of god i don't think we should be doing this kind of emotional manipulation to anybody i'm sure as hell shouldn't be doing it to kids right i threw that sermon away by the way it's one of the ones I discarded. One of the ninety percent of the sermons I preached right. in my life, a thousand and some, I threw most of them away into the outer darkness. Into the, uh, yeah, where into there's the, weeping and yeah, gnashing of teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then one other thing I want to say before you wrap up is that part of my um, ministry moving forward into my last third of life or last fourth of life, whatever it ends up to be is to challenge 
uh, how we both read and view the Bible. What I've been saying everywhere and anywhere that I can is the Bible is our book. It's not our God. And how important it is to dethrone the Bible so that we can put the Holy Spirit in its rightful place so that this kind of dialogue can actually take place without somebody trumping with some verse somewhere. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying now? Yeah. I would like us to find a God that we can be interested in, attracted to, excited about, not just in our fear and our weakness, but in our um, in our strength and in our hope. And this just this this version just does not seem to be that God. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for the third installment in the Atonement series, which will be on Rene Girard's theory. It is about the scapegoat mechanism, and it is quite different from the first two theories. It's modern. Rene Girard is not principally a theologian, and there will be a different pastor other than my father. So please join us next week. Thanks again for listening.